Father God, teach us your word. Allow us to be conformed and even be comforted by your word. We know that during these times that are tumultuous and uncertain, that we can ground our certainty in you. We're so thankful to have a God that's unchanging. We're so thankful that we worship God that's all-knowing, um, that can appear uh, into all of time and orchestrate every little um, event and providentially move things for the good of your people and ultimately for your glory. Be with us this evening. We study your word and we grow in our love and affections for you. Praising your son's name. Amen. One light of recent events is actually kind of hard to imagine for the life of a Christian to get you know, better. Um, I think I've mentioned this a few weeks ago, how uh, whoever wins the election, it doesn't matter who wins, that there's just going to be a, a growing animosity towards Christians. Uh, the world that we live in in America is growing more secular, which means that the their view of religious or things that are spiritual is, is dwindling and things that are um, more of this world is, is where their affections lie. Um, that means that for us Christians, that finding a job, a spouse, or success in life is going to be harder and harder. Um, it's going to be difficult to even to be a light in the world because we're holding on to Christ. But yet, we have to understand that this isn't new. Christ told us that, there, that, these, uh, that, that if you want eternal life, you're going to have to be willing to give up this life. Um, persecution is actually normal for Christians. In fact, in John chapter 15, the same author that wrote the book of Revelation, it says this, John chapter 15, verse 18 to 19. This is Jesus speaking. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world loved its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. The Christian life is backwards uh, in, in a lot of ways. It's a religion that's not based on your own merit. It's a religion based on another person's merit. It's not based on what you can obtain in this life, but rather what you can lose in this life so, you can, so that you can obtain eternal life. It's not about success in this life, but it's about success in Jesus. First uh, Corinthians 1, chapter 1 tells us that our, our faith, the gospel message that we have is considered foolishness to the world and that the Lord uses the weak to, to shame the strong. The Lord uh, opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's backwards in that way. So we have to understand as Christians, that means that our happiness is actually not why we're Christians. Our happiness is not the reason why we placed our faith in Jesus. Rather, we have an eternal joy that comes in worshiping our Lord. It's normal for the church to be persecuted. And not only that, but actually abnormal if we're not persecuted. Being a Christian, you choose to follow the Lord. And yes, I understand the doctrine of election that God um, you know, redeems you. He calls you and then you, you live your life uh, in devotion to him. And every day you're constantly reminding yourselves of the truth of the gospel, and the joys of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And there's a choice that you make knowing that persecution is going to come. You know that being a Christian makes you a marked individual in this world. Christians are called to follow Christ 
and be hated for it. Why is that? It's because they hate Jesus. They hate our God. They hate that it's centered around him and not, and not man. Christians throughout time have clung to the cross because it's really the only thing that we have. Smyrna is one of the seven churches that, uh, that Jesus writes to in this letter. And Smyrna, it's, a, it's, it's predominantly a Greek culture, even though this is a Roman society. It, it kept its Greek um, culture. Uh, the Romans took, uh, fought the Greeks and overpowered them. Um, but what they did was they kind of merged some of their Greek gods with, uh, with Caesar. They did the syncretism thing where they merged uh, religions together. And Smyrna, it's it's a major seaport. It's a it's it's a very protected port. If you look at um, a map, you can kind of see that it's um it's a very, it's a sheltered place. It has natural defenses. It's about forty miles north of Ephesus, which is where the, the the place where we um, taught on last time we were in this book, as well as the book of Ephesians. In fact, what this area is known for is Homer. Simpson, Homer, the dad that wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, right? You guys, have you read, read, you guys read that book before, right? Um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's from this area. In fact, one of the church history tells us that one of John's disciples, Polycarp, was a pastor of this church. Uh, I'll speak more about him later on this evening. Smyrna is a big city, and it's a city that still exists today. It's a very prosperous city, and it's, um, and it's, it's if different people, uh, historians said that uh, Ephesus and Smyrna would always try to compete against one another to, in terms of its natural beauty. It's trying to say like, you know, Ephesus, like, oh, we have Artemis and Diana. It's like, well, we have this port and, uh, you know, look at all our, all our Greek statues and all of our temples. And, um, you know, they're just trying to show off who, which uh, land is better. I guess Smyrna is a place that merges religion together. And uh, when they conquered them, when they're conquered by the Romans, uh, they made the, uh, basically make the Greek gods worship Caesar. So if you think Greek, that's like Zeus and them, uh, they ended up um, worshiping Caesar. And um, again, they mixed their gods together. And, uh, and then Caesar, and again, when I say Caesar, it's like any, all the Caesars, it's kind of like when we say president, it's like, it could be anyone depending on the time. Line, but uh, Caesar had his own temple, and Smyrna uh, had its, its a, had a unique temple, and that it's a transcendent temple. And that uh, usually, whenever a new Caesar comes into place, they will build their own temple, and people will go and worship him. But those, the temple in Smyrna had this very unique one, where it's like that's the temple that everyone can go to uh, if they want to worship Caesar. And how they would worship him is that they will burn this candle, they'll burn this incense. And when they do it, they're given the certificate. And if let's say, you know, one of the uh, Roman soldiers say, hey, did you burn the incense to Caesar? And if, if they don't have that certificate, they'll be arrested for it. And there, you can imagine how hard that would be for people that are monotheistic. And the two groups that were resisted were the Jews and the Christians. Uh, the Jews believe that you know, God is one and then Christians believe that God is one too, but we believe in the triune God. And oftentimes these um, these burning incense thing will happen on Saturday. So the Jews will be like, well, we don't, we don't, we don't do anything on Saturday. It's a Sabbath for us. So they kind of get like a pass. And a lot of times the reason why the Jews were able to um, thrive and still continue to live at that time was because they oftentimes would rat out the Christians. Um, they would they would like figure out ways in which they can like you know, give information on on different Christians and then the Christians will be caught because of it. 
And uh, Smyrna, this church, is the most persecuted church at the time. It's unparalleled. Its government was going after them. Um, and again, this makes a contrast in our life. Because I think sometimes when we think of, oh, whoever wins, life is going to be harder. And it is, but the government in, that we live in are not directly attacking Christians. Uh, they're not hunting Christians down. At worst, you just maybe be uh, canceled from the culture. You might lose your job or you might lose some sort of level of influence, but they're not going after your life, unlike the people here in Rome or in Smyrna. And, um, and you know, that because of this rising persecution, there's oftentimes they, you know, people don't want to associate themselves with people that are known as Christians. In fact, if you would ask yourself, if you were living at in that time, would you want to be associated with a member of this church? If you were a believer and you found out that, like, okay, if there's one church I want to be part of, which one would it be? Would it be Smyrna? Would Smyrna be the church that you want to be part of? A little background more about this book as a whole for us to just kind of remember this is written by the Apostle John, the, the apostle that Jesus loved. He's at this point in his 90s writing this letter. He's exiled in the island of Patmos. <clears throat> and he's the last living apostle. Um, each of the churches here is judged based on their own context. Um, John is in this island writing this and the Lord gives him this letter and he tells him to write everything down, everything that's happening right now and everything that is to come. Um, so chapter two to three is really that. It's like what is going on at that time and then from the rest of the book is what is to come. So he's writing this and uh, he gives it and after he's done writing, he gives it to these messengers in verse eight talks about how these are the angels. And remember how last time we spoke on this, I said that these were not actual angels with wings, but rather these are probably the elders of the church. Um, I, at least I prefer that translation. Um, and, and, you know, they will go to each of these churches and they'll read what Jesus has said about them. And these are Jesus's critiques. These are Jesus's standard of what is a faithful church and what is an unfaithful church. Again, these seven churches are real churches. They were in real locations. They had real congregations. They had real elders. They had real problems. They were, and they existed in, 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 in our past. In times of persecution, the church reveals what it loves most how can we as christians understand that the, the current of persecution as a, you know, the current persecution is coming towards us how can we endure and i hope that this message it really is, is is for you to store in your mind and hopefully somewhere down the line when the persecution comes when things get harder for us that you will remember this passage that's my hope that um that you would see this as a way to, to equip yourself for the danger that is to come how can we endure persecution? Well, Jesus evaluates this church for us, and he'll help us see um, how to do that. If you remember last time I said this, this is going to be the same outline. Uh, it's going to be that that church's strength, that church's weakness, and that church's response. So in this case, the first point for us today is Smyrna's strength. Smyrna's strength. We see this in verse 8 to 10. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna writes, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Again, this is important for us to remember because each of these introductions is, in a lot of ways, Jesus is, is saying these things, not randomly. He's specific on why that is. He's letting them know that he's the Alpha and the Omega, that he is, in, he is above time. He, he's the one who created time. He's beyond time. And it's during these times of persecution we need to know that we need to remember that God is 
sovereign over all time, that there's not a, a, a nanosecond that goes by that surprises him. He knows what's going on in every aspect of history. And it says here, he was dead and comes back to life. This is, you know, dying on the cross, going to the tomb and resurrecting. And it's supposed to give them hope that even though these people are dying, they will be raised up again with him. Um, verse 9, I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jewish, uh, that are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows their poverty. Again, the government made this deal with the Jews. They said that if you go uh, find these Christians, then we'll let you go. And um, you know, the Christians were kicked out of the temple. In Acts chapter 2, they were, you know, they were all removed from it. So there wasn't a place for Christians to go or a central point that's just kind of scatter and go all over the place. The place that you know, this temple was the same temple that was rebuilt in Ezra and Nehemiah, the place that the, at that time, they were saying, oh, we will devote our life to following God. Generations later, that's no longer the case. They're kicking people out that are actually truly following the Lord. Um, and the Jews, and, and you know, the, the Jews, again, they would be hiding on those Saturdays, so they would be omitted from the persecution. But the Christians, they were all over, and then they were being hunted. Christians would get caught, and, and um, originally, uh, they... Uh, they would only ask the male of the household or the husband to be you know, to be thrown into jail or, or you know, get killed. But over time, it moved to the um, you know, like younger people and, and other family members as well. And you can imagine just the pressure. You know, let's say your husband is taken uh, or your father is taken. There's going to be pressure on your mom or you to be able to step up in order to survive. Um, and it means that it's, it's very difficult to survive. And you understand the way back then it was not like now. Now there's like, you know, everyone could get a job. But back then it was harder for like women and children to do that. And oftentimes children would be sold off into slavery just so that they can survive. You notice that Jesus said he knows the tribulation. Tribulation is this word that uh, we should be very familiar with in San Francisco. It's the, earth, it's the word for earthquake. Uh, and, as, and again, the ironic thing, similar to SF and Smyrna, is that there are many earthquakes in this area. And Jesus is using uh, their land and what's going on there as a way to kind of make them understand that uh, yeah, when the world, uh, just like the world is shaking, there's something even greater, and that's uh, that your, your life as a Christian is being shook. Uh, your 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 footing is always unsteady because of the persecution. It's hard to stand and walk as a believer in Smyrna, and it's just and there's a temptation for these Christians to deny the faith, to just worship Caesar, and and the and the tribulation will stop. And you know, back then, I think I mentioned this that. When they were to worship Caesar, all they have to do is just burn this one incense and say that, oh, we, we devote our life to Caesar. Just burn this one thing, get the certificates. What's so hard about that? You notice uh, later on, it actually talks about how he knows their, um, uh, that they will be, they'll suffer for 10 days, verse 10, uh, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Uh, this isn't to say that their, their, the Smyrna's trial only lasted 10 days. Rather, they gave people 10 days uh, to recant Christianity. So if they catch a person, they say, okay, we'll give you 10 days, 10 days for you to, to leave the faith and worship Caesar. And you know, at the time, there were two ways in which to kill someone. Either they 
put them into the lions uh, in a coliseum and the lions eat them or they light them on fire so they gave them 10 days to decide and some people have uh you know some of the people in history have said that they they endured in the sense that they did not deny um jesus and they get killed others did uh, end up leaving the faith but what about you how would you respond how would you respond if the world told you why can't you just do this one thing and accept the world's idea you know like we live in a world where now it's like why can't you accept this moral uh, thinking this way of thinking in terms of gender and and sexuality why can't you just accept this one thing because if you accept this one thing, we will stop bothering you. Or why can't you accept this idea that all gods are the same? If you just accept this one thing and, not being, and, and don't be such a bigot about everything, everything will go well. Believers at that time wouldn't do it. And at that level of faithfulness is what led them to much tribulation and poverty. And that is going to be the case for Christians as well. That if you, hold, if you, if you attempt to hold fast to the faith, Tribulation will come and poverty may, it will come as well. Smyrna here was the wealthiest city. Remember, it's a, it's a port, kind of like SF. You know, SF has like a lot of tech things up here. There's not really a port, but there's a lot of things here that make SF pretty wealthy. Um, but yet, even though this is a very wealthy place, uh, the church itself was very poor. Again, this is reverse thinking. Um, and again, like I said earlier, how the, the Christian faith is kind of backwards is that um, world, worldly success often means spiritual poverty. The inverse is also true. Spiritual riches often will lead to earthly poverty. And I'm not talking about finances necessarily, but just even your, your social standing, the things that make you successful in the world. If you're loved by the world, there's a chance that you might not uh, be a lover of Jesus because you're too much like the world. Jesus said that they will persecute you because you're not of the world. Smyrna, the people there will take away property and um, and they'll just, you know, they'll just take away property from Christians when they find out that these people are believers. This means that if you will say a business partner with the Christians, you wouldn't want to stay away from them because not only did they take away their homes, but they'll take away their businesses as well. So they kept their distance from Christians. If they find out that you know you're a believer, you're, you're if you're an employer and you find out that oh, one of your employees is a Christian, they'll probably ask you to leave so that they don't want to lose their business. Or if you're you know in any circumstances where uh, you're associated with them, they don't want to have anything to do with you because they're afraid that they just because of close proximity might lose their livelihood as well. Now, how many people would want to keep distance from you? knowing that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, we are growing, there's a tension going on in our world, and especially in America, and that they, they, their view of Christianity is it's not like hostile towards violence, but they think that we're a bunch of weirdos. And again, it is weird because we worship a, G, a guy, a Jewish person that came to the world, world that is God, died on the cross and rose again three days later. That's a weird message to the world. And that we're called to follow this individual. That's weird to them. But, our, but it doesn't matter what the world thinks. We should be proud by the fact that we get to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. The fear of Christians at the time made it hard for people to associate with other Christians, which means that Christians at the time were extremely poor. Even though they lived in a very wealthy place, they were, the Christians were extremely poor. Jesus says that he sees their poverty. 
but he knows that they're actually rich in the heavenly sense. That every time that they've endured suffering, every time they were slandered, every time they lost their job, every time they lost um, whatever in this life, that they were gaining heavenly reward. Persecution usually brings this type of riches. It's valuable in the eternal sense. Now you have to understand Christians leave the things of this world to follow Jesus. And the riches of this of, of God cannot be, um, you can't go to the bank and say, hey, I, I can't tr- trade in my Bible reading for money. You know, that doesn't work that way. You can't leverage your godliness for earthly gains. Notice that it says here that the blasphemy of, by those who are Jews but are not, or who say that they are Jews but they are not. In a little bit more context, Christians were known at the time as atheists. And uh, by along with the Jews, they were no, both known as atheists. And by atheists at that time, it meant like uh, they worshipped a god that they could not see. Uh, when you look at the Greek gods or the Roman gods, there were statues and places. Uh, the Jews at least had the temple, but the Christians didn't have anything. They didn't have like a designated uh, building where they worshipped. You know, they didn't have like a church building the way that we think about. Um, they were all in homes, and there weren't any statues that they made for Jesus. Um, so, you know, you can imagine these Roman people, they're so used to seeing a visible statue. They look at these Christians like, you don't worship a God because we don't see him. You know, we can, the Romans can say things like, oh, we can, if you go to the river or you go to the mountain, or you go to this place or that, that's where those statues are. For the Christians, they, they, they don't have that because we don't believe in making you know, idols and things like that. Um, and, you know, the Christians were known as uh, incestuous because they called themselves brothers and sisters. You know, and so when when a married couple would get arrested, they'll say, "Who is this person?" They say they would say, "This is my wife. She's my sister in the faith." They'll think that's weird, or they'll say that, "Hey, uh, these people are cannibals because uh, they they eat and they drink, uh, they eat flesh and they drink blood." Um, you know, this, this is all bizarre to the world. And the Jews, they like they they kind of fan the flames a little bit. They try to make they try to give more information. They probably spread some of these lies, um, and you know they. Uh, if you imagine being persecuted by these people, they say, "Hey, where's your God?" Say, oh, he's a Jewish guy. Jesus, he died. He rose again. He went to heaven. Again, they don't see him, so it just sounds so bizarre to um, to that to that world. The Roman gods you can visibly see, but Jesus they cannot. Again, this is not that far off from what we think about today. In our world, we our God may not be like a statue Greek God, but I think the most prevalent one is that of science. Right? The scientists, people say, well, you can't prove God, you can't see God, you can't feel God with all the things that you have. Um, you know, science is this because you can you know, look at it, you can test it, you can do all of these different things. Um, and it's something that they can see and it's tangible to them. And Christians, we say, again, we worship the invisible God. We're not afraid of science or anything like that. We believe science is a means by which God has given us to just know more about him. But the world thinks that science is the like the highest authority. But we believe that there is authority greater than that. And the Christians at that time were thrown, into, were thrown out of the temple. And there was no usual place for them to worship. They were persecuted. And there was no normal physical building. And later on, Christians would be killed and they would be dragged into the Colosseums and they would, and the people would chant, away with the atheists, away with the atheists. That's how Christians were known at the times. Again, um, they did, because of their faithfulness to the Lord, they were persecuted for it. Um, they had uh, the eternal riches, even though they were extremely poor at the time. 
but notice that Jesus said that they are not the Jews or they, there's like, um, but they but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, this is speaking of the Jews that are worshiping false gods. Essentially what Jesus is criticizing to them is that these Jews, in fact, some might even remember Jesus. Um, these were the ones that claimed to be following the true God, but they're worshiping, uh, Jesus said, the, their father, the devil. And this is what he's trying to get at, that that temple is no longer um, uh, valid. In fact, the Romans will eventually destroy this temple. Um, and Jesus tells them that this form of Judaism is a false religion that actually is a worship of Satan. Um, every world religion outside of biblical Christianity is of the devil. All the lies are of the devil. Uh, their partial truth is still a lie. Um, you know, in our time, Kelly and I talked about this in this whole shelter in place, and we talked about how, like, you know, when the when the government called the church non-essential, I don't, and we were wondering, like, you know, why did they call the church non-essential? Part of it, I think, is just because they thought that Christianity or every other religion is, like, the way that a person views, like, a hobby or something. It's like some sort of, like, gym membership. So they say, oh, well, these things are non-essentials. And that is the way the world views the church. They don't see it as like, this is, you know, this is the one true God that we're worshiping a living God and that everything that the Bible says is true. We submit to the authority uh, of scripture. The world doesn't see that. They don't understand. And it makes sense that they don't understand. But the world, even though the world may not understand, but do you feel that way about Christianity? Do you think of Christianity as the most important thing in your life, or is it non-essential to you? Because if you think in those terms that, that Christianity is just some sort of side thing that you have, or just some hobby that you do, then when persecution comes, you'll get rid of those things quickly. Persecution comes for those who claim to be Christians, but those who will endure it. That's how you know these people truly love the Lord. That's why in First John tells us they they went out of us to really, but they were never they were never really of us. That's what's saying here, that um, these Jews are, are persecuting, claim that they're following Jesus, but uh, following God, but they're not really. They're a synagogue of the devil. Again, it's hard to imagine us living up or enduring persecution if being zoomed out is a reason why you don't want to fellowship. Uh, it's hard to imagine Christian uh, enduring persecution or claiming that they will be bold for Jesus Christ if they are fearful of evangelism. It's hard to imagine for a church to be faithful when hard times come, when real persecution comes, that the church can't handle the small little struggles in this life. So this is what is Smyrna's strength. Now we'll look at Smyrna's weakness. Second point, Smyrna's weakness. Nothing. <laughs> there's no verses here that says there's no critique. They just, in the, there's nothing that was said here. Um, this doesn't mean that this church is perfect in any sense of the word, but they were faithful. They were resilient uh, in the Lord. They were faithful and, uh, and, and, and kept the faith. Um, there were threats from the world and they were faithful. Smyrna's suffering is what caused them to be so strong in the faith. And this is a lesson for us that we need to embrace this we want to be known as a church that is faithful to the Lord, that, that yeah, we might not be perfect, but at least the one crowning jewel that you can say about SFBC is that we love Jesus and that we will endure anything and everything for him. 
he is our all. And if, we, if he is our all, then we can lose everything in this life. Embrace the potential threat that is to come. The politics can, uh, can be a means by which that is to come, but it doesn't matter because we can endure. What makes a church thrive is actually not comforts, but persecution. If you want Christianity to end, the answer is actually not to destroy them, because I'll make them thrive. If you want Christianity and Christianity to end, you got to make it easy for Christians. Persecution will show you your true allegiance. How can we be like this church? Well, this is the third point: Smyrna's response. So we looked at Smyrna's strength. This is, is that they are under persecution. Smyrna's weakness. There aren't any. Now, Smyrna's response. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. There are two imperatives in this one verse. is do not fear and to be faithful. Uh, there is no word from the Lord when this persecution is going to end. Yes, there's that 10-day mark, but that could be just for one person for 10 days. There's no guarantee. They did not know that the Roman Empire is going to fall. They did not know any of this. All they knew is that they, they need to endure um, until Christ returns or until they're taken, uh, or the life of it are taken away. Again, this persecution for 10 days is this idea of burning this candle and um, and if they don't deny it, then they get killed. Either they get fed to lions or they get burned at the stake. Well, not to at the stake, but they get burned um, alive. And Jesus tells them to don't fear. Don't fear. Do not fear. And be faithful. Don't fear the, uh, what you have to say. Uh, or or you know, what you, don't, don't worry about your, your employment, your education, your social standing, or anything this world has to offer. Rather, be faithful and don't be afraid. Hold on to your faith. And I noticed last week that one of the presidential candidates says, hold, keep the faith. And, you know, he's saying in a superficial sense, in fact, you know, faith to in the election, whatever. But we, we know that when we talk about keeping the faith, it has actual eternal substance. It's focusing on God. It's focusing on the promises of God. You have to remember that when this letter was written, it wasn't just these two chapters. It wasn't just chapter one to three, or at least the first three chapters. It's the rest of Revelation, as they read through this whole book, they they know what the ending is. They don't know what their immediate, um, the immediate kind of suffering when that will end, but they know that Jesus wins. They're holding on to the promises of Scripture. That's, that is what keeps them from denying the faith. Romans 8 tells us that, um, let me turn there to you guys, Romans chapter 8. It says this, who will separate us, Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ or tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things uh, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us, separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
These are the promises of scripture, the, of heaven, of being in the presence of the Lord forever. This is what allows the believer to continue. If you look at the world, you see all the people that are really truly persecuted, whether it's under some sort of religious rule or, or some sort of a government, what keeps them from denying the faith is that the promises of eternal, um, of, of eternal life. They're trusting in what scripture has to tell them. Do you trust in God's promises? Do you trust God's promises in the future? Do you trust God's promises in the moment? At the end of these 10 days, some of these people were faithful and it caused them to lose their life. Notice this says the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. I think there's a connection to earlier where it's at the synagogue of Satan. There's probably some of the Jews that, um, that, that brought them, that betrayed the Christian, not really betrayed, rather just, you know, gave information to make the life, the life of the Christian hard. Uh, but I think Jesus clearly, clear, clearly saying here that this is demonically inspired. Satan will be uh, the one persecuting the church. Uh, they will tempt individuals and corporately, and Jesus is aware of what's going on, and he's telling them to endure. Remember, Jesus is not someone that does not understand this type of suffering, right? Like uh, Judas had Satan enter into him. He was tempted by the devil himself. Um, he understands the, the, the pressure and the difficulties of being tempted by the devil, but he's encouraging us. Jesus is encouraging us to endure. The devil doesn't know that he is still under the sovereign hand of God. I do believe that the devil actually thinks he's so twisted in his thinking that he actually thinks that he can somehow manipulate um, something out of God's hand. But yet God promises through the scriptures that that's not the case. Martin Luther described him as the uh, Satan is still God's devil. God doesn't and isn't the reason for sin, but knows and will allow the devil to act according to his nature, and God will still be able to use that for his glory. We understand this in the book of Job. Uh, the Lord allows the devil to do what he need, what he wants, but he's still under God's sovereign hand. Satan can never go beyond or further what God decrees. And it should give us comfort because we have to understand that means that there is a, there is a limit to that suffering. Um, it will not last forever. It will only last as long as God allows it to last. And we can endure it because God gives us the strength to do so. And this is how we can honor God in our suffering, that we suffer um, for him. At the, end of, or at the end of verse 10, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Suffering for Christ is a mark and a badge of honor for us as Christians. Smyrna has these Greek games, and the result is that they'll give them this crown. In this case, again, Jesus is using an image that they're, they're familiar with and saying that you, instead of this reef that you put in your head that just deteriorates, there's going to be a heavenly crown of life. That You may lose this life, but you're going to have a crown of life. And again, I think that's why early on in verse 8, he, sa he says that he is the one that, that died, he, he was dead and has now come to life. He's, he's in charge of life. In Jesus, there is life. And this is, again, helpful for us because even if the devil uses situations to bring about our death, it is great for Christians because it brings us to our eternal life. Jesus knows our suffering, all kinds of suffering, from disease uh, to the devil. God knows it all, and he is and will continue to give us comfort and strength during, the, during these times. 
and you overcome persecution, you will, uh, you will not enter the second death. You'll not enter the second death. This is what uh, verse 11 says. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, he who has overcome, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. John uses this um, phrase, second death, in, his, in the gospel to speak of eternal hell. You know, when we think of that phrase, you only live once, that's actually an unbiblical statement. Rather, Christians actually, you actually live twice, but it doesn't sound as cool. Yalt, it doesn't sound cool, but that's actually more biblical because we live twice. We have this life, we have eternal life. Uh, even the, even the non-Christians, when they die, they get resurrected too, but their body is going to be thrown into the fire for eternity. So don't be afraid of those that can take the, take this life away, but fear the Lord who can take, who can destroy this life and uh, the one that is to come. I mentioned earlier that Polycarp is, um, was part of this church. And Polycarp, you know, church history, he was actually the disciple of John. Some people think that when John, you know, the messenger here um, was Polycarp, he was the one that got this letter and then you know, gave it to the pe people in Smyrna. It's unknown whether he is that. There's no record of that. Or he could have been the one that at least, heard, at least read it for sure. Um, he was he was John's disciple, and um, he pastored in Smyrna ten years after this. Um, and after ten years of you know ten years after this, this letter, he was pastoring at that church for fifty years. And um, you know for fifty years he was this faithful disciple of of, of Jesus. He, he 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 taught all the things that John taught him, which is all things that Jesus taught him, and some of our some of the things about him we still have today. And uh, during this time, you know, there were still people in Smyrna were still being persecuted. And one of the last things that he said was that before he died was that 86 years I've served him, he has done me no wrong. And again, this doesn't, it's unknown whether that means he's 86 years old when he's persecuted or that um, he only, he was only a believer for 86 years. So he might've been maybe older than that, maybe like a hundred or so, but either way he was, the time where he was martyred was he was at least 86 years old. During his time as pastor, there was a new pro-council, and that's in our, maybe in our lingo would be like someone that is a, a legal bounty hunter uh, that, that has the ability of a judge and a, and a police officer. So he can say, hey, I want to get this guy. He can sign, the, he can you know, give the warrant, he can bust through the door, he can grab the guy, and he can um, sentence this person to, de uh, to death. That's what the pro council was. And this one pro counselor, uh, he tried to persecute, I mean, they were trying to persecute Christians for the last 50 years and it didn't work. So he had this one guy, uh, this new pro council do it. I forgot his name, but he was the guy who essentially built the Coliseum. Like they, uh, back then they were fed to lions and stuff, but he made the Coliseum that was packed with like several thousand individuals. And what he would do is um, he would starve lions. And again, they were using the same tactics before, but the, this time he was way more brutal. He, he would starve the lion for six days <clears throat> and they would be hungry. And then on the seventh day, he'll, they'll bring in the Christians and the lions would just go and, and eat them. Um, but that's not a really an efficient way to kill people because lions are not like us. You know, when we go to buffet, we eat like crazy. A lion knows when to stop. So when they may eat like one person and to stop, but there's like still a lot more Christians that they have to kill. And um, 
And the, you know, the Jews, again, they saw this as gross. They didn't have anything to do with it. They just let people go. They'll let Christians go into the place and get caught, but they're not, you know, participating in it. Um, and, you know, so, you know, because lions were ineffective, the other option was to burn them. Now, there was a time for Polycarp, but he was, um, he was being hunted. They wanted to, they wanted to find him because, you know, they figured if they get the big guy, then every Christian will be afraid. Um, and uh, and even remember how early I said the age of persecution usually like the husband, but then it got lower and lower. So instead of just persecuting the dad or the husband, is they start persecuting like the teenagers just to kind of add pressure to the Christians. And um, and they, you know during this time they couldn't find him. And um, uh, Germanicus he was uh, he was the one uh, that was you know they asked him to uh, betray. Uh, he, you know, they, they tell him to portray Polycarp, but he didn't want to. He gave this talk in the Colosseum to other Christians, and, and instead of, you know, telling instead of the guards bringing him to the lions, he ran himself. He just ran toward the lions because he was afraid that he would, the fear would catch up to him. He would give um, Polycarp away. Uh, but there was a traitor. Named, his name was Quintus. He was the second youngest in that group, and he feared uh, he was afraid, so he gave up Polycarp. He said, okay, I, I, I renounce Jesus, I'll give you the name of Polycarp. And what they did was they made him stand in the middle of the Colosseum and burn the incense in front of everyone. And then they let him go. They gave him a certificate and let him go. Then Polycarp got caught. He eventually got caught. And they made him, and then Polycarp was like, okay, well, since I, since you, all of you, so, you know, army of soldiers or police are here, uh, he, he asked for two things. One of them was that he asked if you could cook them all a meal. So you, know, you travel all this way here. Let me just cook a meal for you guys. Uh, and again, this is, uh, shows the kind of Christ-like love that he has for people that were going to kill him. And the second thing that he asked was that he wanted to pray. And then those guards were not were like, okay, whatever, just praying. So he spent two hours praying. And it's unknown what he prayed for, but this gesture of feeding them and then praying, I would imagine he was probably praying for these people, uh, the way that Jesus prayed for those that wanted to kill him. They were, some of these soldiers were so moved by this, by this kindness and this prayer that they actually, some of them got saved. Um, and this prayer lasted two hours and they, they brought him into the arena. And then uh, even before they got to the arena, the, you know, the captain was like, okay, he, he, was, he just started having this like change of heart for Polycarp. He didn't want Polycarp to die. He told them, hey, you can go with me and we can do the burning incense in private somewhere. He, uh, you, we don't have to do this whole Colosseum thing. Just, just let, uh, just, just do this one thing. I don't want you to die. And Polycarp said that last line, like you know, for 86 years, Jesus has been so good to me. Why would I do him wrong? And he refused. And at the time, the lions were already fed, so then uh, he didn't, you know, they didn't feed him to lions, so they decided to burn him and uh, they stripped him naked and they were going to tie him up. But Polycarp was like, look, I'm not going to run. You, you don't need to tie me up in chains. I'm not going to go anywhere. But they tied him up anyways because they, they tied him you know, with his, his hands together. And then before he, um, before he, uh, you know, before he, they lit him on fire, he prayed. He prayed again. And he prayed that, the, that his death would be used by God to, to build the church, uh, that other people will be saved and be encouraged and be strengthened by it. And, and they lit him on fire. And then um, said, the historian said that he, when he was on fire burning, um, he was at peace, you know, it wasn't like, it didn't look like he was, um, 
he wasn't, you know, he wasn't look like he wanted to get out. He was just burning there. And people thought that there was some supernatural thing going on. So they actually stabbed him as well. His blood gushed down and it kind of diffused the fire a little bit. And then they just kept burning him and eventually he died. Now I would imagine that during those last moments of his life, as he was thinking, he probably, he probably remembered this chapter. He probably remembered this portion of scripture that he remembers that if you endure that you have the crown of life this is what i said at the beginning i hope that you would treasure this passage in your own heart but i mean i hope you treasure all of scripture but in particular this one passage here because when persecution comes when you endure you will be blessed with the crown of life polycarp i mean, again imagine him having all these flashbacks and he's seeing this he's remembering all the things that the apostle john taught him and his faith his faith um was strengthened because of the promises of God. He was not afraid to be killed. And that's what we need during times of persecution, to keep the faith, to, keep, to remember the promises of the Lord, and to not be afraid. May it be said of us in our church when persecution comes to our door. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we marvel at the saints of the past and how they they just kept their faith in you and their continual love for you. Lord, may we be that way. Lord, there's just so many trivial things in our life that we are so worked up about that have no significance in eternity. May we cherish the things that matter most. Um, may we cherish you. Lord, give us the strength. Give us the strength now so that uh, we can build and dig deep and hide these convictions in our hearts so that no matter what type of tribulation or turbulence come in our life, that we will not be moved because our faith is founded on the foundation of you, Lord. Um, Lord, we're grateful for your word. May we continue to be comforted by it during these confusing times. Be with us now. We fellowship as we go about our weekend. May we um, have opportunity to share the hope that we have um, to others who do not know you, that we can offer a peace that uh, this world can never offer. Thank you, Lord, for your love towards us by sending your cross to die for our sins. And may we, if it's, if it's deemed worthy in your eyes, may we die for your name as well. Thank you for everything. Praise you in your son's name. Amen.